1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistines bring the captured Ark of the Covenant into their temple. Then things start to get a little spooky and undeniably supernatural. Supernatural! We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. The title of the message is, The Living God.
2: Alright, 1 Samuel chapter 5. The whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And at this point in time in 1 Samuel, things are not looking good for Israel. Their army is scattered Their leader, Eli, is dead. His sons, the priests, are also dead. The ark has been captured, rendering worship at the tabernacle impossible. Things are probably the worst they've been for God's people since they entered the promised land. Now, we saw lots of things happen in a negative way in the book of Judges, but even when they'd been defeated or oppressed by enemies there, at least they still knew they had the Lord. In their mind, with the ark gone, that means the Lord's gone too, in their mind. But the Lord hasn't forsaken them. In fact, he's going to use this massive defeat to remind the Philistines, not just Israel, but the Philistines who's really in charge, as well as open his people's eyes to their sin. So chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon when they of Ashdod arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emrods, even Ashdod and the coasts thereof. So, kind of an interesting little event here, multiple events that are going on. The Philistines have captured the ark. It says they took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And Ebenezer was where Israel's army had set up camp. It was now a ghost camp because every man had fled to his tent. So they had left the ark behind because the priests who carried it there were dead. And so they capture the ark, and they bring it from Israel's camp to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is about 30 miles southwest of the battlefield, and it's right on the Mediterranean coastline. It was the chief of the five royal cities of the Philistines. But they did not bring the ark there to put it inside a palace. Verse 2 tells us they brought it into the temple of Dagon. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house, or literally the temple of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon in the Hebrew means little fish, but that's likely a mocking word. The Hebrews probably gave him the name Dagon to mock him. I'll get to why in a second. But Dagon, the god of the Philistines, he wasn't just a god of the Philistines, he was originally a Sumerian god, but they had adopted him as their kind of primary god. He was always pictured as a half-man, half-fish creature. The top half was the man, the bottom half was the fish. But he was not their little fish. To the Philistines, he was their storm god. He was kind of like their equivalent of Zeus. They prayed to him for their crops, for the rain. They were a maritime people, a traveling people, so they prayed for him to give them good seas. He was their powerful, -powerful, all-powerful, big-time deity. And so they placed the ark next to Dagon's statue in his temple to show that our God had defeated Israel's God. And so this is like Dagon's spoils of war. We took our spoils of war, and here's Dagon's spoils of war. But I think the reason that Hebrews called him little fish is because Dagon was a very tiny fish compared to the one who created the seas. And so it says, in the next morning, after they set the ark next to the statue of Dagon, they woke up, and this is always disappointing when this happens to your God. Behold, Dagon had fallen and he couldn't get up again. He had fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now, fallen on his face, the way Dagon's statues always were, is always with one or two palms upward. So if he's falling on his face like this or like this, I mean, he's in a position of worship before the ark of the Lord, prostrate, position of a worshiper. But when your God falls on your face, what do you do? Well, you just pick him back up and set him on his feet again. So that's what they do. They took Dagon and they set him back in his place again. How did you get down here? You don't belong down here. You belong up here. And so that's what they do. Before we continue, aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't need to be propped up by us? I'm so glad the Lord's not counting on me to keep him afloat. I don't wake up one day and I just, Lord, what is this mess? What has happened to you? You know, and I've got to pick him up and put him up again. I am so glad because most of the time I wake up, I'm already a mess. I don't usually wake up in the spirit. An idol can't hear your prayers. It can't hold you up. The Lord hears our prayers, and he doesn't need to be propped up, held up, picked up by us because he never falls, he never fails. Idols, on the other hand, they are this kind of a burden rather than a blessing. We read about that in Psalm 115. It said they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Whenever things happen in Israel, people go, ah, where's your God now, Israel? And they would say, Lord, so show mercy, show your strength, show everyone where you are. Because when they ask us, we tell them, our God's real. He's not fake. He's in the heavens. Your God's a little whatever over there. He has eyes, but he can't see. She has feet, but she can't move. This it thing with 13 faces and 12 arms, it has those things, but it can't help you. It can't carry anything for you. And so that's what they would say. Well, where's your God? Because Israel didn't have physical representations of their God. It was such a foreign thing back then. And so they would say, well, you know, He's in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. He doesn't have to be carried around by us. He doesn't have to be moved from place to place by us. Now, the problem with worshiping something that claims to be greater than you, but is actually lesser than you, because you have eyes and you can see, right? Is that Psalm 115, 8 says, they that worship them are like unto them let me put it this way. When people create an idol, they create an idol to describe the best thing they can imagine. So if they made an idol that was to control the weather because they needed good crops, that was the highest thing. Like if I just had good weather every year, then my life would be great. And so they create a little God that brings them good weather and they worship that God because it's the highest they can imagine their life being. And so what the idol promises you is that highest life that you can imagine. Not the highest life that God created you for, but the highest life you could imagine. So whether it's a God of weather, a God of fertility, a God of pleasure, I mean, you name it, all throughout the different pantheons that have existed in the history of the world. Whatever it might be, that was your highest ideal for yourself. God created us to be so much more. So when you worship an idol, that idol promises you that highest life that only you can imagine, but what it ends up doing is it weighs you down and makes you far less than what you're created to be. Because not only has the standard been lowered, but it can't help you even reach this lowered standard, and therefore you actually become the lowest you can possibly be. Now, in opposition to this, Jesus is real. And because he's real, he says this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are burdened and weighed down. I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many times that my wife has told me, you really think you're that important? Well, I'll be worried about something. I didn't do this right or I messed up here, whether it's with the kids or with something and you say, you really think that much is counting on you? You take a step back and you go, that's a heavy trip to carry around, isn't it? It's a heavy trip to carry around. Oh, my kids failed because of me, or church isn't blessed because of me, or everybody, everything's going bad at work because of me. And it's like, well, God's way bigger than me. And while he calls us to things and he invites us to partner with him in things, right? And it's important that we do those things the right way. The reality is, is, We're not meant to carry around the burden of success like that. The Lord doesn't lay that burden on us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, back to this situation. God obviously is trying to get the Philistines' attention through this. It's not like he just likes knocking down idols. So, when the warning to the Philistines doesn't get their attention, he sends a clearer one. Verse 4. They put their god back up, so I figure everything's fine now. Must have been a stiff wind last night. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. That's the same, but here's the difference. And the head, or literally the top half of Dagon, the human half, and both the palms of his hands were cut off, and laying upon the threshold. Only the stump, the fish part of Dagon, that's the only part of the statue that was left where it originally was, where they put it up. Now, I think it's important to understand something here. The phrase cut off does not mean broken or shattered. It's not like the idol fell and it cracked in half, and the the hands cracked and fell off. The word for cut off literally means sliced clean. Sliced clean. So it's not like the statue fell and smashed into pieces. No, this thing was sliced halfway through the middle and then the hands were sliced off. Clean cuts. As if someone came and they you know, took a, I don't know what you'd cut stone or whatever it was made of with, but they took just a saw or something and, whoosh, and it was sitting there on the threshold. Now the threshold of the temple, that's where people would wipe their dirty, stinky feet upon entering the temple. That's where Dagon's head and torso and hands are sitting. Now, something else I found was very interesting. Expositor's commentary said In the ancient world, heads and hands were battlefield trophies that allowed victors to establish a correct body count. The Lord's taking names, He's establishing the victory count. By slicing up the idol and putting his torso and hands on the threshold, the Lord is saying, I took your God out in his temple. Do you really think it's wise to believe that you defeated me in battle? Do you really think it's wise to challenge me, to think you can control me? You see, the reality is, when the Philistines fought against Israel and defeated them, it's not that they defeated them. It's that God allowed Israel to lose. And that is a huge difference. And the Philistines showed their foolishness that they did not understand that difference when they didn't recognize that truth and they put the ark in Dagon's temple. But the Philistines continue to challenge the Lord. So God ups the ante. Verse 5. Therefore, and this is where their challenge is, therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house, they don't even walk on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. In other words, in their mind, rather than see that their idol was defiled by being thrown in pieces onto a foot wiper, the Philistines decide, oh, the foot is now holy because the idol touched it. And so now they won't even walk over it. Now if you got near this thing, it would... Reek. But now the thing's holy. It's special because our God's pieces touched it. It takes a special kind of stubbornness to come to that conclusion. And so, verse 6, But <laughs> because they persisted in their foolishness, because they rejected God's correction, the hand of the Lord was heavy. The word means intense, fierce, pressing down on them, bringing hardship upon them. The hand of the Lord was intense, pressing down upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them, laid waste to them. How? He smote them with emrods, even the city of Ashdod and all the villages round about, all the borders of Ashdod, all the little suburbs that were around it. Now, what are emrods? All I know is I don't want emrods. What are they? We don't know for sure. Some people have suggested it was the bubonic plague, The word emrods, it means tumors or boils in the groin area. Whatever that is, that doesn't sound good. And this wasn't just an uncomfortable or painful plague. This was killing people. They were dying from this. And so finally, the Philistines recognized the Lord as the source of the things that had been happening to their God, to their God's statue, and in their city. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, Huh, the ark of of the God of Israel shall not abide or stay with us. For his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon, our God. The word sore there, it means to bring hardship or trouble. He's doing all this stuff. I mean, he's beating up our God and now he's killing our people. Now, again, I think it's important to stop for a minute and point out something. Aren't you glad that no one can cause trouble or hardship for the Lord? Like, there's never an event that occurs here on the earth or anywhere in the universe where anyone has to look and go, oh, no, man, God's in trouble. How's he going to handle that? No one is causing trouble or hardship for the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, a very famous verse, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and and your stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. And then God responds in verse 27 of the same chapter of Jeremiah 32, and he says, Behold, I am the Lord. I am who you say I am, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The context of this happening, of these statements, when Jeremiah says that, and then God responds, the context of it is because the Lord tells Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, I want you to go buy some land. Now, why would that be a big deal? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was about to lay siege to Jerusalem and about to destroy it. And God had told Jeremiah this. God knew that Jerusalem was going to be leveled to the ground, that the temple was going to be destroyed, and all the Judeans were going to be taken captive to Babylon, most of them at least. And so the Lord, in knowing this is coming, the Lord says to him, I want you to go buy some land then pass it down to your descendants. And Jeremiah's thinking, why don't I buy land that I'm not going to be able to enjoy? I mean, we're going to not even be in the land anymore. The reason that God told him to do that is because he told Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, even though all this is going to happen, I'm not going to leave you in Babylon. You guys are going to come back. I'm going to restore my people to their land. And I want you to prove that you trust me in this, that I can do this by going and buying this land. So Jeremiah, before he buys the land, he says, oh, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Is anything too hard for you? Because it sounds impossible. I mean, that's not a wise investment, Jeremiah. You're throwing your money away. You might as well light it on fire. And yet he considers when God tells him to do this, he says, well, you've made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, by thy stretched out arm. Is anything too hard for you? And throughout the conversation they have together, him and the Lord, the Lord finally says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me. This thing that probably sounded crazy to everybody Jeremiah told the idea to probably seemed like the most impossible thing. But Jeremiah did it because impossible doesn't apply to the Lord. It doesn't apply to him. Because with God, all things are possible. Amen? Nothing causes trouble or hardship for the Lord. But it was for their God, the Philistines' God, Dagon. He was having a rough time of it. And yet, while the Philistines correctly recognized the Lord's involvement, they don't arrive at the correct solution. They said, he can't stay here. He clearly does not like it here. And so verse 8, They sent therefore, and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And so the Philistine rulers, they answered and they said, well, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. You know, just take it to Gath. Now, the Philistine nation was a pentapolis, had five rulers who ruled over five royal cities. I don't know the inner workings of their government, but these five guys were the guys in charge. And so when they were consulted, they said, the people of Ashlet said, it can't stay here. What do we do? And so these five guys said, well, just take it to Gath. Now, Gath was the farthest inland of the five royal cities. And as such, it served as the staging area for any raids they made into Israel. And it was their defensive fallback if Israel ever invaded them. So this was a military place, okay? So now I don't know if they thought, well, the Lord would be happier if we move him closer to Israel. You know, here's, here's a nice spot, Jehovah, in the window. You can see the hills of your homeland. I don't know if that's what they thought. Perhaps they thought a military city would keep the ark in line doesn't tell us why they thought Gath would be a good place. All I know is that whatever their reasoning, it was faulty because the Lord can't be controlled by men. And so look at what happens in verse 9. It says, and it was so that after they had carried it about to Gath, the hand of the Lord was against the city of Gath with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emrods in their secret parts. They began to break out and become sick with the same plague that had afflicted the area of Ashdod. And it didn't matter who you were, small or great in people's eyes, you were a ruler, you were a poor person, didn't matter. The Lord didn't discriminate in who he judged. The Lord never discriminates in who he judges because we are all infinitesimally small when compared to the Lord, no matter what our standing is in other people's minds. So, since Gath doesn't work out well, they thought, well, maybe a new city will work. Verse 10, therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Now, Ekron was another of these royal cities, and the people of Ekron worshipped a god named Beelzebub. And Beelzebub was a god associated with good health. And so, they probably figured, let's send it to Ekron, because he can protect us from this plague, this disease. That'll teach Israel's God, we'll send him to the place that he can't get anybody sick. Well, it came to pass, verse ten, that as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out. They did not have a lot of faith in Beelzebub. They cried out and they said, "They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people." They also did not have a whole lot of confidence in their leadership. Why are they bring the ark? They brought the ark here to kill us. And so, verse eleven. They sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to his own place, that it does not slay us and our people. And why were they saying that? For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. So it does not go well in Ekron. Their solution is return it to his own place. The Lord's clearly not happy anywhere we try to put him. Send him back home to Israel. Because throughout the city, there was a deadly destruction. Phrase there means there was panic and turmoil because of the plague. And the hand of God was very heavy there. Not just heavy, but very heavy. In other words, every time the Philistines reacted to the Lord's judgment by trying to control him, the Lord upped the severity of the judgment every single time. And this time, the entire city came to a screeching halt, filled with the wails of the sick and the dying so the people demanded that their leaders return the ark to Israel. For it says in verse 12, the men that did not die were smitten with the emrods, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. I mean, this was bad stuff. It was rough. So they tell their leaders, you can't stay here. You've got to send it back to Israel. But how exactly are they supposed to do that? Their current solution clearly wasn't working, but what should they do? Well, chapter 6, verse 1. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So all this is going on that I've read through here in these 12 verses of chapter 5. That took seven months to occur. Verse 2, and the Philistines, the leaders, they called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. Now the diviners, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by this. Some People who practiced divination back then, they would use the organs of ritually sacrificed animals to divine the will of the gods. They would kill an animal, offer it as an offering, and then read the organs. Some diviners, they would cast lots. And so whatever came out, that was what the will of the gods was. I don't know which one it was. but The point is, these guys were considered experts in their field, and therefore they were important counselors to the political leaders, especially when you had spiritual matters going on. So they are consulted here about what to do with the ark of the Lord. So the Philistine leaders, they have not decided to send it away. That's what they were recommended by the people of Ekron, send it away to Israel again. They don't know what to do with it. It's tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. In other words, tell us in what way we can send him to whatever place he'll be happy in. Because it didn't make sense for them to go up to the closest Israeli army and say, uh, Hi, we're returning your God. He didn't like it in Philistia. Many Philistines had died. Surely word would have gotten to Israel about this, and Israel might perceive this as an act of weakness by the Philistines. But they also, they didn't want to upset the Lord again by doing it in a way that didn't make Him happy. And so they consult with these spiritual counselors about what to do and how to do it.
1: This has been In the Word